Hello and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is Friday, August the 31st, 2018. I'm your host, Tiffany, and joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have Doug, Erica, and Elliot. Hello. Hello. Uh, Gabby and Jonathan are off today. They'll be back soon. So today's topic, well, the title of the show is Love Eating Crap, Blame the Food Processors. (laughs) So we've all, unless you're some kind of aesthetic monk who never cheats and lives a perfectly healthy lifestyle, we all have or have had our favorite foods, junk foods, I should say cookies, candy bars, pizza, chips, ice cream, french fries, the list goes on and on. So these junk foods all have something in common. They all use really fantastic and wonderful combinations of fat, sugar, and salt to keep us all coming back for more. Um, There are big food processors. Um, They have scientists on board to come up with the perfect combinations to get us hooked like we're on drugs so that's what we're going to talk about today Um, we are in the midst of an obesity crisis and it seems as if i think i read some things where it says that almost 50 percent of at least the american diet is made up of crappy junk foods Mm. i remember being in the grocery store the other day (laughs) and there was a i guess it was a father there with his kids and i looked in his cart and it was just full of chips and energy drinks (laughs) (laughs) and i guess that that's the grocery shopping for him yeah but actually reading here tiff it says it's 60 percent. 60 percent. 60 percent of the food we purchase comes in the form of processed junk Uh, That's really sad, but there are reasons for it, and we'll get into some of the science behind why we can blame the food processors, but I think partially the blame has to lie on our brains also, (laughs) because the brain has a preference for high caloric density foods. Mm -hmm. So where do we want to start? Well, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it it is really interesting because it does seem like, you know, on the one hand, you can totally lay the blame on the food processors. You know, they are specifically designing these foods to be hyper palatable, as they call it. In other words, Mm. taste really damn good. And because they've gotten so good at this science and really found amazing ways of exploiting these things in our brains that make us think that what we're eating is really good. Um, You know, you can't necessarily blame them because of course they're designing a product that people are going to like a lot and are going to want to buy more, you know, because they're economically driven, they're of course going to keep on pouring science into that. Like how can we make it? And essentially they are trying to make it addictive more or less, although they wouldn't use that kind of terminology, I'm sure, but they would say, They're just growing their customer base. Exactly. <laughs> Growing it and, and inc- making the uh, repeat customer ratio even higher. 
-hmm. So it's kind of like using these little exploitations, and they're not even necessarily little exploitations. I mean, some some of these processed foods are nothing but a freaking chemistry set. Like there's there's nothing there's nothing really left in there that you could even call food. Mm -hmm. But they they're so good at doing these manipulations that they just get us to eat it and eat more of it. You know, especially well, take if. For example cheetos like if you look at the first slide on the pictures in our slideshow those are cheetos in case people didn't know <laughs> but is that even real cheese and what is the cheeto is that wheat is that corn i mean what is in a cheeto i wish well i guess i could google it but i couldn't even consider that food <laughs> no it's true Just the color I alone is so off-putting <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, and the flavor, the thing is, the flavor, too, doesn't taste like anything no. even remotely natural. Like, you can't eat it and be, you know, eat, like all the fake cheese stuff, like Doritos and Cheetos and all, all that kind of stuff, you know, you taste it and it's kind of like vaguely reminiscent of cheese, but not really. Mm. Yet, that kind of has become the cheese flavor, you know? It's like all this artificial food, it just has, it has this cheese flavoring, and that's how people think of cheese now. Like, you think of Kraft macaroni and cheese, or Kraft dinner, Ugh. as we call it in Canada. Like, that <laughs> is the cheese flavor. But realistically, it doesn't really taste that much like cheese. It's kind of its own thing. Well, I got the ingredients for Cheetos here. <laughs> ah, I'm guessing corn. Yeah, it's a vegetable oil. Is, which is either or all of them, uh, corn, canola, and or sunflower oil, cheese seasoning, whey, cheddar cheese, milk, cheese, culture, oh, salt, cheese. enzymes, uh, maltodextrin made from corn, salt, whey protein concentrate, MSG, natural and artificial flavors, lactic acid, citric acid, artificial color, yellow number six, and salt. <laughs> <laughs> Everything a growing child needs. I'm impressed that they actually have real cheese in it, though. They should put that on the package. Made with real yeah. cheese. And it's, well, it's a cheese seasoning. I don't know if I would <laughs> consider that cheese. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Yeah. yeah. I used to eat those. Yeah. I was never big into the Cheetos, but Doritos? Oh, man. When I was a kid. <laughs> I went to town on some Doritos. <laughs> but what uh, are the the big British junk foods, Elliot? Uh, so generally, most of them come from the U.S. Oh, yeah? <laughs> we can thank you for that. Yeah, we we have a we have a, a variety of of what you guys call chips, but we call them crisps, um, and they're like Walkers. I guess they're typical sort of Lay's brand. Um, we have those sorts of things, and one of the junk foods is pork scratchings, but most of the people don't really tend to eat them nowadays with the whole anti-fat thing. So most of it is really US branded stuff, Doritos, Cheetos, um, that kind of crap really. Um, and then we have a lot of sort of, you know, sweets, you know, like jelly sweets and things, and traditional British sweets like hard-boiled candy and stuff like that. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it's mostly from the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we do have a clip. It's from the CBC. And since we were talking about um, how these big food processors have scientists on board to make the food especially yummy and addictive, we can go into that. 
The food industry is extremely secretive, competitive, and proprietary. It took years and hundreds of interviews before Michael Moss could finish his book. This was like a detective story for me, getting inside the companies with thousands of pages of inside documents and getting their scientists and executives to reveal to me the secrets of how they go at this. What did he find? That the food processing industry rests on three pillars, salt, sugar, and fat. Well, these are the holy trinity of processed foods. And again, when they hit the perfect amounts, they call it the bliss point for sugar, the mouthfeel for fat, the flavor burst for salt. They know that their products will be irresistible. Salt, sugar, and fat in combinations nature never intended. And increasingly, scientists agree there is evidence that these highly palatable foods can be addictive. Yeah, well, for me, I'll be spooning or reaching or whatever, and I'll be thinking, I've got to stop, I've got to stop, I've got to stop, and my, you know, I just, I just don't stop. Her name is Pat, and she's a food addict. I was desperate when I was a food addict. It was really, really uh, devastating, and I felt powerless and ashamed, and it was horrible. Her kitchen is a battleground. Every meal a challenge to remember that for her, even a taste of sugar can set her back. Seeing food will trigger it. Uh, advertising for food will trigger it. These foods are so, so addictive, so appealing. Every cookie is crammed with joy. There are many food addicts who say that um, long after the food stopped causing us joy, long after it started causing us misery, we still couldn't stop. How about one of those chips? Just one. So it becomes hardwired and it's very hard to overcome. Bet you can't eat just one. And while the industry hates the word addiction more than any other word, the fact of the matter is that their research has shown them that when they hit the very perfect amounts of each of those ingredients, they'll send us over the moon. Their products will fly off the shelf, we'll eat more, we'll buy more, and as they are companies, they will make more money. We're activating those limbic structures. Francis McGlone is a neuroscientist. As part of a BBC program, he put a British chef into a brain imaging machine and fed him chili. Every 38 seconds, Ashley had a drop of chili oil squirted on his tongue. And watched as the heat from the chili peppers triggered a release of feel-good chemicals in the brain. So the consequence of that, that low level of pain is that it floods the brain with its own natural opiates. Francis McGlone was a pioneer, one of the first neuroscientists to work in the food industry. He spent 10 years doing neuroscience for Unilever, one of the world's largest food companies. As a basic neuroscientist, I was able to look at the mechanisms that basically drove preference for various types of food. Using neuroscience, Unilever made headlines with this finding, ice cream tickles the brain. Just one spoonful lights up the happy zones of the brain in clinical trials, the company reported. This is the other part of the body that fascinates food scientists, the mouth, the way food breaks between the teeth, the pressure of the bite force, the sound of the crunch. It's partly it's the noise, um, and the noise, of course, amplified by the fact that your jawbone is connected to your ears, um, and you really hear that, that crunch quite loudly as you bite. But it's also the physical 
um, requirement to chew on something and to, to crunch it just distracts you. It pulls your mind onto what you're eating. Chris Lukers is a food industry consultant who helps companies come up with foods that are what he calls Moorish. In other words, make you want more. They want you at the end of each product to reach for the next one and put it in again. And they often achieve that by having a very intense taste hit right at the front of the mouth and then it dies off very quickly. And so by the time you've finished each mouthful, you're looking to refine that taste which you've lost. The shape of the food is also important. Chocolate should not have sharp edges. Absolutely. We're looking for chocolate to be comforting, to be a really pleasant, lovely experience in the mouth. Um, melt is a very soft, soft experience. Um, and if it's got sharp corners, uh, you're really spoiling that and actually setting the consumer on edge slightly before they get the melt. Food scientists know what it takes to trigger the brain to stop eating. They call it sensory-specific satiety. And that's an expression that says when foods have one overriding flavor, if it's attractive, it'll be really attractive to us initially, but then we'll get tired of it really fast. And so these companies make a concerted effort to make their foods not bland, but really well blended. And why can't you stop at just one? It's called vanishing caloric density. Vanishing caloric density applies to those things like Cheetos that melt in your mouth. And what happens is then that your brain gets fooled into thinking the calories have vanished and you're much more apt to keep eating before the brain sends you a signal, hey, you've had enough. Welcome to the Sensory Sciences Lab at the University of Guelph. Can one person from each week come here for a minute? This is teaching the students how to set up a sensory test. So all the students in this class are learning the basics of conducting sensory evaluation research because it's not as, it's not as simple as eating a food. They're different in an ingredient and what we're looking for is to determine which one is preferred or accepted by people. So um, in this case it's actually a different sodium level. So which one did you like better? I liked the second one better. The salty one? The saltier one, yeah. Because these products must be able to sit on the shelves for months, many of the ingredients have nothing to do with taste, but act as preservatives and chemicals to control the appearance and texture, and a series of ingredients known as flavor enhancers to trick the brain into tasting something that isn't there. There's tremendous amounts of money spent behind creating tastes and smells that feel real, but in reality are completely artificial because without flavor enhancement, no one would eat it. It would taste horrible. You would just, you know, you'd want to spit it out. One food company made a special batch of crackers for Michael Moss to taste without any salt at all. It was a god-awful experience tasting those things. Normally, I can eat Cheez-Its all day long, but the Cheez-Its without the salt, I couldn't even swallow them. They stuck to the roof of my mouth. A tour of the grocery aisle reveals that something is changing. Suddenly, cookies boast health claims. Chips have whole grain and fiber. If the food industry can find a way to market it and make money off of it, I'm sure they will. But if it long term is decreasing the amount of food that they can sell, I don't see it as being a, a, an avenue that they'll go down. So whether lower in salt, sugar or fat, higher in fiber and grains, containing real fruit or baked with real vegetables, you will be back for more.
The food industry depends on it. Kelly Crow, CBC News, Toronto. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. yeah, it's kind of, I don't know if I would say the word evil, but it's extraordinarily manipulative and devious. Mm -hmm. So if you are one of those people who are struggling or have struggled with food addiction, don't be so hard on yourself. I mean, it's up to you to acknowledge it and to stop, but just know that these people know how to manipulate your brain and it's not necessarily so much that you have absolutely no willpower. You're just one of those people who responds to certain cues in food more so than other people because there are people who can eat junk food and not become obese or they can eat junk food and just eat a little bit and walk away and then there are those people who just lose control yeah 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 so, it, it, it's important to to sort of understand the evolutionary sort of context um how how the brain determines what kinds of foods are um, important for its survival yeah so many of the um, I guess the <laughs> eating behaviors because eating is a behavior um, when you look at behaviors uh, the, the 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 determinants of those really uh, lay in the circuits in the brain okay and so the the way that we eat and the things that we eat um, can be highly influenced by by how the brain is functioning and by various parts of the brain and so if you look at it from from an evolutionary context um, and you look at the way that the brain is wired to respond to various types of foods what you see is that caloric density is extremely important yeah and so the the brain will respond to highly dense or highly calorically dense foods um, in in a way that is different to foods which are not high in calorie density um, and if you think this makes perfect sense because if you are for instance let's let's take the Hadza um, they are a traditional sort of hunter-gatherer um, group of people and it, it turns out that when you look at their day-to-day -day lifestyles um, they typically gorge on really high cal calorically dense foods so for instance um, when they come across honey uh, they will not simply just take a few sips of the honey um, they will drink like pint glasses full of the honey okay and likewise when they when they hunt a, zeb a zebra or another kind of food apparently the first thing that they do is actually use their fingers and to touch various parts of the body to see where the most fat is located on the animal and then they will tear apart the animal and basically uh, locate the fat and gorge on the fat so <laughs> so there's an innate understanding and it's probably a biological understanding that the foods which um, possess the most energy are the the most important for survival and so we see that in terms of reproductive survival um, the individuals which have the highest energy intake 
um, in a traditional culture are the ones who are more likely to be able to reproduce. So ultimately, in a traditional context, energy density refers or is synonymous with reproductive ability which is synonymous with life yeah it's like your genes are geared towards reproduction and spreading more genes and so what we see in these individuals is they do gorge they really gorge on 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 high fat and high sugar and high starch foods but the difference is they don't get obese so there's a couple of factors that go into that I think and it's really quite complex um, there was a, um, a neuroscientist his name is Stephen Guionet um, and he wrote a book called The Hungry Brain and it's really quite fascinating uh, he's got lots of interviews online and he's got uh, he's actually got a blog uh, I can't remember the name of the blog but I'll find it and I'll post it on the chat basically he's he's a neuroscientist who studied um, this in, in really quite some depth over the past decade or so and so it turns out that um, these individuals, these traditional cultures, don't get obese, even though they do gorge out on these these high-calorie foods. And one of the reasons could be put forth for that is because in acquiring the food, they have to expend such large amounts of energy, first of all. Because you think, to be able to access honey, you need to get to a bee's nest. And to get to a bee's nest, uh, if you've ever seen any videos on YouTube, actually smoking out the bees, you know, one of the, the ways that they do this is actually they have to collect a, a vast number of leaves and then they have to burn the leaves and actually climb up to where the bee's nest is and smoke the bees out. It puts them into like a, a state and then they have to get the... The, the, the bee's nest and carry it down and break it open and then they get access to the honey. Likewise, if you're going to have a really high fat meal of animal fat, you're going to have to chase down an animal. You know, so there's, there's this caloric there's this expenditure, this energy expenditure, which usually goes into that. But secondly, if, if I may interject, I would argue that they aren't doing these things every single day either like people in the western world modern western world have access to very high caloric high caloric density foods they can just go down the street to the grocery store every single day and get these foods but i doubt very much that these hazda people are knocking down bees nests or scoring a zebra every single day so they have periods where they feast and then periods where they don't that is exactly the second point that I was going to come to because oh. <laughs> you're, ex you're exactly right there, Tiff, is that they have short periods where they have access to this food and then they go for long periods of time feeling really hungry. And this is not just the hunger pang that makes you go to the fridge and get some food out of the fridge. No, this is actual real hunger. And they go through periods where they don't have food maybe for days at a time. And so really it's... It's it's necessary, you know, for that. And, and the brain is almost, I guess it's part of the way that the brain evolved. 
or the way that the brain adapts to the environment is it understands that okay in a natural environment you don't have access to these kinds of foods all of the time and so when you do come across it it activates certain reward circuits and pleasure circuits which suppress satiety so when you have sugar and fat at the same time um, typically the, the body does not respond in a way as it does to a, a meal of a different composition um, which uh, which is the same caloric density if that makes sense so if you have sugar and you have fat that will tell your brain this is really good um, you need to eat more of it basically and if you think of it in an evolutionary context that that makes sense because you want to put on as much weight as you can because there may not be food for another two weeks um, and so the problem becomes is that in our modern world we do not live in the same environment but we have the same um, circuitry in our brain which has evolved to, 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 to basically help us survive. Um, we're no longer in that environment but we do have access to those those foods which trigger those responses um, and so it, it's really uh, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and, and don't they call that the, the food pleasure equation? Is that what scientists use so that the, the involvement of the physiology, psychology, and neuroscience, that salt, sugar, and fat? And I think it was that, um, what's his name, James Clear that talked about that, the food pleasure equation. It just postulates that the brain has the ability to quantify the pleasure contained in an eating experience. Mm -hmm. as performed by certain dopamine neurons in the brain and sensing of calories in the gut. And so when you have a choice, the brain actually calculates how much pleasure is going to be generated during the eating and digestion of the food. So when you think, oh, am I going to eat something healthy or am I going to have those Doritos? <laughs> Turn your mic up a bit, Erica. You're okay. turned up all the way on my side, but... You're quiet. Is that better? Yes. I think so. Okay. Yeah, so it seems pretty manipulative that they would have an equation to, to, to make those that addictive. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is kind of manipulative. I agree. But it's kind of like, it seems like our entire social system is, is set up to be manipulative in that way i mean that's basically what all advertising is about right mm -hmm. creating needs in people creating wants you know everything you know it, it it really kind of blows me away we seem to be harping on doritos here but i thought it was really <laughs> funny when like i guess it was probably mid 90s or something like that they changed their branding to be really extreme and like you know every, it looks like there's explosions on the package and stuff like that and it has these mm -hmm. really kind of like you know just just really emphasizing that kind of extremeness of the snack so i think i mean it's even though you know we're talking mostly about the the way that they manipulate the flavors and stuff to make them um so desirable i think that it even gets down to like the advertising and the packaging and all these kinds of things it's all designed to you know grab your attention and make you go towards it it's like well you know i'm feeling kind of crappy as i'm walking through the grocery store and then all of a sudden i see something on the shelf that's just exploding out at me and it makes <laughs> me think wow that's going to give me tons of energy look at the look at the the colors on that package look at the explosions that's what mm -hmm. i need 
right there. Well, um, at the end of the clip that we played, they were talking about uh, how the guy went to one of the food companies and they gave him some Cheez-Its without salt, and he said he could barely swallow them. So I think that's another important point. Like these food combinations, like you have to have a combination of fat and sugar or sugar and salt or fat, sugar and salt all together in order to make the food like extraordinarily tasty and keep you coming back for more. Because like take for example, popcorn. If you have popcorn without butter and salt, it's pretty boring. Yeah. <laughs> and you really, I mean, you can keep shoveling movie popcorn into your face. Like you can get a large <laughs> bag and finish it. Maybe I shouldn't speak in the general view. I should be speaking from my own experience. <laughs> no, I've been there. I've never eaten more than a handful of plain popcorn. It's just not even, it won't take me to that bliss point. So I won't eat it. <laughs> well, it's like we were yeah. talking about before the show. It's kind of like, um, I think Elliot gave the example of like potatoes, right? Who is going to eat a plain potato? It's kind of like you'd have a couple of bites and you're like, nah, okay, I'm bored. Whereas you throw some butter and some salt on those things and it's like, I can no longer stop. And so, Tiffany, would that be like the salivary response? So adding the butter because it's emulsified or salad dressing to something or even mayonnaise, like it makes mm -hmm. your mouth water. So you, you want to have that whole mouth experience not even necessarily the, the the content of what is making that happen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well there's, the there's that aspect. There's that aspect to it, but there's there's also the the um the the activation of the sensory receptors. Okay, so you've got various um, sensations involved in food. You've got um say you've got sweetness, and then you've got bitterness. You've got sour. Um, you've got salty, and then you've also got one which is meaty, which is called umami. Uh, it's like the one that they use. Um, I think they use it for M they use MSG um, to to give to give foods this umami flavoring, and it it's means the deliciousness in Japanese. <laughs> yeah, and so basically, it's the it's the combination of all of those sensory inputs. Um, and this is what the scientists have been working on to really tap into each one of those, the perfect ratio um, to activate the pleasure centers. And what's really interesting is that um, you can, I mean, we all know from experience that you can really pig out on, on a savory dish and you can feel really full and you, you really hit the bitterness and the saltiness and the meatiness and you, you feel satiated. But then someone puts a dessert in front of you and suddenly you feel hungry. Um, and that's because it's, it's tapping into the, to the other sensory aspects of that. So you've, you've almost satiated your salty preferences and your meatiness, but you haven't got any, any of the sweetness. And so your brain actually perceives that as, okay, right, so I haven't, I haven't sort of satiated the, the sweet aspect or the, or the sweet sensory sensation, and so I will do that. And so it's really easy to overeat by simply 
mix mixing all of the different um all of the different sensations into one or into a couple of different meals at the, at the same time and the problem is is that if you look at food in its natural state we typically don't have that it's very difficult like doug just said about the plain potatoes like or even it could be go you, you know you could go so far as to say okay butter how much butter when it's unsalted you know unsalted butter how much butter can you actually eat like really uh, i mean if you've ever tried well yeah okay that's that's a good argument but okay um but if you mix <laughs> well, that with, with sugar lard or tallow you can't eat that well yeah that, yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> no it's that's good, that's correct an adjunct to your food but who's gonna eat more than like a spoonful of lard but if you but if you mix that with some sugar and some yeah. cocoa powder or something then it uh, all of a sudden yeah. makes it really now good you're talking. you know like uh, when you're making a cake and you 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 mix the butter with the sugar i mean i could eat that all day <laughs> yeah so yeah that's interesting because as a preparation for this show we uh, took a look at a book called um why humans like junk food by Stephen Witherly. And um, he, it, it's a very interesting book, although it should be said that he's not really like, I think we were kind of hoping that he would go on some rants about processed food, but really he's just breaking down why people like food. And mm -hmm. there's not a lot of judgment here, um, which we probably, probably would have preferred more judgment. But anyway, um, so he goes over a lot of different things in um, you know, the flavoring, the mouthfeel, the, uh, the texture, all that kind of different stuff with food that actually makes um, people prefer those foods. And um, he breaks it down into there's, there's the big six. So it's kind of like six particular ones that, um, uh, that, that food processors tend to use or that people tend to be really attracted to. And the sixth one, I'm starting with the sixth one because we were just kind of talking about it. Um, Erica brought it up, which is emulsion theory. And emulsion, apparently the taste buds really like emulsions. So whether it's a mix of kind of fat and salt or fat and sugar, but that kind of creaming together of those flavors. And he uses, gives some examples like butter, chocolate, salad dressing, ice cream, hollandaise mm. sauce, mayonnaise, mm. creme. And it's like, I was thinking about it and I'm like, you know, who wants to eat a plain salad generally? right but Nobody. you throw on an emulsion of oil and vinegar and like so you're mixing all these uh, flavors of like the salty the sour the the oil and suddenly it's like the salad is delicious this is the best thing i've ever eaten well, i would venture to guess that that's one of the primary reasons people eat salad yeah again totally. i can only speak for myself but the salad <laughs> dressing is key <laughs> absolutely it is yeah <laughs> But, but also uh, the sauces like hollandaise. I mean, who doesn't love eggs Benedict? Oh my God, yeah, it's so good. And really, all you're doing is putting like fat and eggs on top of eggs, but it's so good. Yeah. So I could go through a couple of other ones here. Yeah. Um, one of the ones he says is something called hate, taste hedonics. And it says that food must contain salt, sugar, MSG, and flavor-active compounds. Um, preferably the above at a physiologically correct amounts. Salt at 1 to 1.5%, MSG at 0.15%. Something called five, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, but five prime nucleotides. Is that right? Mm -hmm. um, so. 
at 0.02%. And I think nucleotides are the, the, the protein components of, um, of DNA, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's where the yeah. umami flavor comes from. Um, so in sugar systems, salt will always improve the overall taste hedonics. 0.25% salt is usually sufficient. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the what we've been talking about. That kind of combination of the the salty, the the sweet, the um, and the fat kind of all together. Um, another thing he talks about is dynamic contra contrast, um, and he says that the tasty foods always tend to have this texture flavor contrast. Um, so it's kind of like if there's a rapid food food meltdown in the mouth um, with a snap, crackle, and a pop. Um, next to a taste hedonic um, that also has kind of the smooth, um, creamy kind of texture. It's like kind of like that's like the, the ultimate. So I always mm -hmm. think of like, you know, nachos with cheese. Or mm -hmm. he used the example of like Oreo cookies. You know, it's got that crispy outside and then that smooth, creamy inside. It's like, like a taco, a hard yeah, taco. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. That's why I like hard tacos. I realized that after yeah. reading. <laughs> yeah, me too. I prefer them to soft tacos, actually. Me too. People, people oh don't God. understand. I and agree. I try to explain it to them, so now yeah. I have the science. Exactly. <laughs> it's all about dynamic contrast. Yes. I feel like you're my kindred spirit here. <laughs> <laughs> um, One thing that I found really interesting, and it totally makes sense, is about how food evokes certain memories specifically memories of your childhood or like what was happening when you ate a certain food or who you were with and how much you enjoyed it and that keeps you coming back to that particular food. Mm -hmm. uh, so he calls that uh, evoked qualities. Mm -hmm. So if you are presented with a food that made you feel good in the past, you're going to more than likely choose that food over something else. Yeah. And it makes and that's your funny. mouth water just thinking about it. I mean, think mm -hmm. about that, that you, you have this memory and then all of a sudden your mouth waters and then you're in a grocery store and you buy those Oreos <laughs> before you even know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. it's, kind of, it's kind of funny, though, because that seems like a completely subjective thing, right? Like everybody has different memories and they're going to have different positive memories associated with different uh, um, things in their life lives. Mm -hmm. Um, but I noticed that food companies tend to still exploit that kind of thing. Like they will, um, you know, have advertising that's like, you know, has kind of a nostalgic quality to it. Oh, it's like uh, grandma's old roast chicken dinner or something mm -hmm. like that. Like really trying to kind of bring that nostalgic element out. Well, yeah, they always try to exploit like family and love and things like that in there advertisement so that's not really a surprise but it works <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah one of the other ones he talks about is the food well i think uh, erica brought this up actually the food pleasure equation which is uh, a, f uh, a function of the sensation and macronutrient stimulation so the tastiest foods maximize both dimensions mm. so yeah well, that's it's no kind of like, real surprise. People like to eat food that tastes good. I mean, chefs all yeah. over the world and people who cook in their own kitchens know that. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's saying that like it, it it's kind of like a ratio. So if a food is less calorically dense, mm -hmm. then it has to be more pleasurable. 
mm. versus like you can get away with something being less um, pleasurable on the palate if it's more calorically dense. It's kind of like mm. people will gravitate towards those those things. And I think it's like you were saying, nobody's going to eat plain popcorn, right? That's not very calorically <laughs> dense, not very pleasurable. Throw some butter and some salt on there and like, boom. Well, uh, if we're talking about food pleasure, we can talk about food displeasure. And I think one of the things I've read in preparation for this show is like, if you have a bad uh, reaction to a certain food, like say you go out to eat and you get sick and you just barf all over the place, chances are you're not going to go back to that particular Food. And there's some foods that I found so disgusting, no one could pay me to eat them. Like, even if I was starving, I would probably eat them, but it would just be like, just no pleasure involved whatsoever. And I would probably eventually die of starvation. <laughs> give, an, give an example. I was just going to say that. Oh, I hate beets. Oh my God, Tiff, you and I are like, like I said, kindred spirits. <laughs> I hate beets. I can't stand mm -hmm. beets. And then one time I ate some those boxes of Kraft macaroni and cheese when I was in high school, and I vomited, and I don't think I ever <laughs> ate any more <laughs> after. They actually talked about that. That might have been in, uh, in what's his name, uh, Witherly's book, um, where he talked about the act of vomiting, actually, and having those flavors mm -hmm. associated with that can actually turn people right off the flavor of that and that's why actually apparently companies that make like alcoholic drinks mm -hmm. um that combine a lot of like the sweet so like the umbrella drink kind of thing where it's like really really sweet they actually try to avoid um it leading to people being sick because people will get so turned off if they ever throw that up that they'll never touch it again which of course they mm -hmm. want to avoid i knew a girl too who actually one time had po food poisoning from sushi and she threw it up, and she could not eat sushi, even though she previously loved it. She could no longer eat sushi mm -hmm. because it was just it just that that um, memory was too strong. Well, and it's, it's interesting about the alcohol thing. When you have too much to drink, you wake up in the morning, and the only thing you want to eat is like fried, salty potatoes or bacon or something like that. Is it because right. you want to make yourself feel good? Yeah. <laughs> <Better>. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's interesting because there is, I mean, with the whole, I guess, in, with the topic of weight management, um, body, body weight management and caloric expenditure and intake, it's interesting that there is a scaling aspect to this as well. Um, and that's typically that if someone um, has the or has a, has a poor night's sleep, um, then various, like a cascade of events take place which essentially desensitize the brain um, to the satiating effects of foods. And so what that basically translates to is that you can eat more um, and you do tend to eat more. And so typically um, you find that in people with um, obesity there is a higher rate of sleep issues and you could you could say well is that because of the underlying underlying sort of metabolic problems associated with 
obesity is that causing sleep problems or is the sli are the sleep problems actually affecting how much that person is hungry the next day and uh, you know an argue argument could probably be made on both ends um, but it, it's it's particularly interesting because like you just said Erica after a night um, when you are out on the town and you're drinking loads uh, we know that alcohol really has a bad impact on sleep and then the next day all you crave is really salty fatty sugary foods or I do anyway <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah I guess it could be something to do with that as well did we go through all of these Pretty much the other ones we had kind of already talked about, like caloric density and emulsion theory, mm -hmm. those ones are probably, yeah. So it's just interesting that they've kind of whittled it all down to these very specific things mm -hmm. and uh, will use it to hijack your brain and make you eat their food nonstop. Yeah, well, and there's, there's another aspect to this as well, which is interesting, and it's food variety. And this is something that that has only sort of really come about in the past hundred years, is that now we have availability um, of foods which typically do not grow in our local environments that our ancestors did not have access to, um, and that kind of you know you've got oranges all year round and bananas all year mm -hmm. round, and it's like well even in the middle of winter you've got access to all of these fruits and things. Uh, and you've got such a wide diversity of different foods that we have av available and that's I think sometimes that's that's a good thing because there are certain foods and herbs and things which are really beneficial but at the same time um, it's been showed that in in the research it basically suggests um, that when there that there is more choice when there's more variability in the different types of foods um, you're, you can eat more. So people eat more when there's multiple different dishes in front of them rather like than if, if it's the same a, kind of food. A cafeteria or a buffet. Yeah. Oh, my buffet, God. It's probably yeah. you eat like 10 times more at a buffet than you would at any other place. Mm -hmm. But yeah. there's also been uh, studies done. I can't think of... Uh, them off the top of my head but I think that I read that you also eat more in the presence of other people than you would if you were alone hmm interesting I don't know I could be making that up but maybe maybe I read it maybe it's true maybe it's not <laughs> <laughs> but there was one study well a group of researchers tested rats and um, they gave them unlimited highly palatable human food and they just let them eat as much as they wanted to and they became junk food addicted and they gained a lot of weight really quickly so then they took away all of the food and these addicted rats would just not eat anything it's like their their palates became so perverted and so they developed such a preference for this junk food. They didn't want to eat normal rat food or rat chow anymore. That's not surprising, really. Yeah. When you look at, um, I mean, it's, it's, uh, that's mirrored in humans, I think, to a large mm -hmm. extent. 
if you ever I've known try, people like that. <laughs> well, yeah. If you ever try to get people who are kind of used to having a very junk food oriented diet and you try and like, come on, man, you got to eat some vegetables. Usually it's with kids or something, but mm -hmm. you got to eat some vegetables. You got to eat, you know, some standard healthy food. And they're just kind of like, Bleh. this is terrible. I hate this because yeah, it's not getting not happy. palatable. Yeah, they're not happy. They're not satisfied. And I believe that it actually tastes nasty to them, which yeah. I found kind of surprising. Like, cause this is like really delicious food. Like, they don't really like go against meat or anything. They'll be happy if they get a steak or something. They don't want any parts of any vegetables, mm -hmm. no fruit. And if they eat a meal, they're, they're not satisfied and they go out and they get some potato chips or something. Yeah. Yeah. Even even salad with delicious creamy dressing on it. Like, nope. <laughs> uh -huh. So it's been shown that that these food, the food composition of the sort of typical junk food type of food, um, can actually stimulate the same areas of the brain that are um, typically active in someone who's addicted to some kind of drugs. Um, yeah. So that you know, there's there's a lot of researchers who are actually attributing it to somewhat of a, of a drug addiction, mm. um, and yeah, that's really it's quite disturbing when you think that this stuff classes if, as food. But on the topic of the rats being fed the the um, the junk food diet, from what I understand, it's the easiest way and sort of the most surefire way to make a rat obese is to mm -hmm. feed them um what what is called an obesogenic diet and so typically this kind of gets me because they just refer it refer to it as a high fat diet like you'll see in all sorts of um different studies in nutrition whenever they use rats and they're using like a control group or something they will use a they'll call it a high fat diet a standard high fat diet but what they're really referring to is the mixture of fats starches uh, you know, vegetable oils and mm -hmm. sugars and everything like that. And so it's a mixture of all these different things, which kind of mimics what the standard American gets a lot of, you know, up, up to 60% of their diet. Um, and, you know, what what's interesting in, in the book, um, The Hungry Brain, uh, Dr. Gaine talks about, he says there's multiple different aspects um, and he talks about all of the neuroscience and everything, but just as a, a brief overview, he says there's like three or four main systems, and I'll try not to butcher it, but he says there's like three or four main systems which have sort of gone, gone away um, when, when you're talking about obesity, and the, 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 the fact is involved, you know, the one of them is the palatability so it's the it's the the mixture of the high fat and the high sugar and the fact that this taps into this sort of evolutionary ad adaptation to be able to survive in the wild yeah and to be able to reproduce um, and so we've we've sort of briefly spoken about that but there's also the the availability and you guys spoke about it a, li a little bit before um, Basically, how there's really there's a lot of interest in research to show that simply having something in the cupboard, like dramatically reduces the likelihood that you're going to eat it, rather than like rather than it being on the table. So the closer it is to you, the more likely you are to to take a bite out of it. Uh, or you know, they, they, there's there's studies showing that if you put something in a drawer. 
then <laughs> then you're not only you're less likely to reach for it because the brain uh Stephen Gynate talks he calls this the economic um heuristic i think it's something to do with the e economy so the brain is basically um you know constantly scanning the environment and basically determining how many how much of its resources it needs to invest um and what the potential benefit will be from that so it's like a, a, a consistent cost benefit ratio analysis kind of thing going on and this is how it's constantly scanning the environment and so if if the brain determines that there is little um cost in terms of energy expenditure and a great uh, potential energy benefit then it is more likely to behave in certain ways so like I've just said um, you know if you have to if you have an orange and the orange is already peeled and it's in a bowl sat right in front of you you're more likely to eat that rather than if it was on this on the same table but you had to peel it because the brain determines okay I need to invest energy in peeling this orange and so I, you know, you're you're actually less likely to eat those foods, and um, and so it's really interesting that in our modern day world, not only is it so palatable, but it's also so available all of the time. Like with the fast food, there's practically zero energy expenditure gone into that, so you don't have to cook it. Like mm -hmm. a, a really good way of looking at this is okay, we we've eaten bread for a very long time. Um, and bread is typically quite calorically dense but the problem is is that when you would make bread you would have to um, sieve the flour then you'd have to knead the dough and that's quite an energy intensive process like if mm. you're making a big batch of bread you're gonna be kneading for like you know a good 10-15 minutes to get the dough how you want it to be and that there is energy that's gone into that process and that mm. partially counteracts or balances the energy that it's going to be consumed whereas today we don't do that we just drive we do you know most people don't even yeah, we walk. don't even walk <laughs> exactly they just drive to the shop and buy a pre-made loaf of bread or a pre-made burger or something so there's this not only is it really palatable and really calorically dense but there's almost no energy expenditure gone into that and that is a really big problem because it's like on every single angle um it's promoting obesity but then there is the question of okay so there's some people who um who can eat as much as they want and they never get obese and then there's other people who eat a slightly slightly you know they go astray on their diet for a couple of days and then they put on a couple of pounds mm. um and so you know we don't really know what affects this it's probably all sorts of things it's probably genetic to some extent and there's probably some kind of beneficial adaptation for the people who 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 do put on weight i, d I don't know but yeah that seems to be uh how things are regulated in in from from the brain from the hypothalamus and it's involving all different kinds of hormones involving leptin and insulin and everything like that but what we do know is that um, there are so many factors that go into this um, and what's really interesting is that typically if you look at the research it's quite hard to get human beings to eat more than they usually would mm -hmm. um, so you know if you've got a standard sort of study population of people who are average weight say they're optimal weight 
and you want them to eat more calories than they're expending, it's really quite difficult to do. Um, because the body kind of has lots of different mechanisms to be able to curb satiety and upregulate energy expenditure. So if someone does eat too much, then they'll simply just burn more calories. They'll produce more heat and they typically won't become overweight. But what we find is <clears throat> in the research is that there was this one study um, where they weren't even trying to get the people to overeat because you, they know how hard it was. Um, but what they did, it was called the cafetiere study or the cafeteria study and they basically um, they got this population of individuals and they locked them in like this little complex for a couple of days or a couple of weeks and it was kind of like a one-of-a-kind study because usually with studies where they try to measure um, what kind of how much food someone is consuming it's very difficult because if you can't see you can't measure exactly what that person is having um, then it's all kind of based on guesswork you know if you're asking someone to measure how much food they've had you, you can't control for every variable but this one was different because they actually had them in a complex and they could measure exactly what was going into those people's bodies and the only foods that these people could eat were ones that were typically found in a cafeteria so chocolates um, savory uh, like salty sausages uh, you know sausage rolls um, pastries um, what else was there there was like um, grain based sort of desserts and they found that they didn't without telling these people to eat more um, these people just naturally ate loads more um, and they put on like five pounds in like a couple of days and ordinarily that's really hard to do with normal food but with this kind of food with the ultra palatable really high calorically dense food uh, it happened almost spontaneously and really really easily um, and these people didn't even necessarily know that they were eating anymore they just they just ate what they wanted to eat and so it kind of demonstrated the how insidious um, the the modern day sort of food supply actually is because in every single way I guess what I'm trying to say is that every single aspect of of the junk food sort of supply that we're getting and that we have access to now is completely um, pr pr promoting obesity you know mm -hmm. that it, and it and it yeah it kind of it makes sense as to why people you know there's a certain degree of personal responsibility that comes into um, deciding what you eat but at the same time if we understand that it's kind of designed to um, to activate these pleasure centers in the brain and whatnot then it's it, it's a little bit more understandable how so many people um, have really become so overweight in such a short period of time because mm -hmm. it's kind of it's really tapping into those those sort of brain-based mechanisms that go beyond um, simple cognitive processes, you know, or that we're yeah. consciously aware of. Yeah. Well, I've, I hope that we've established over the course of this show that junk food is like drugs and that junk food companies manipulate our brains into making us junk food addicts and to call it an addiction is no stretch. I mean, a lot of the hosts on this show probably had 
past food addictions and we all started a certain diet, like a low-carb diet, around the same time. And I'm going to raise my hand and say that I definitely went through withdrawal period just like a oh, drug yeah. addict when I started cutting out certain foods. Like I would have cravings for certain foods and it took a while for it to go away. So now that we are like approaching an hour, I think it would be remiss of us if we did not offer some solutions to, <laughs> to our <laughs> listeners to kind of get off of this junk food treadmill and actually uh, take control of their consumption. Yeah. So uh, I guess I'll just put the, the first, my recommendation out there is to not have junk food in your house because yep. uh, there's no way I'm going to climb a tree and take down a, a bee's nest to get honey. <laughs> and at the <laughs> same time, I'm not going to drive 20 minutes to Walmart a store that I really hate and <laughs> go down the junk food aisle and buy certain foods that I want to eat. It's just not going to happen. So if you make it less convenient to access certain foods, then that I think is a big first step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a couple things I'd add to that as well. Um, specifically if someone's overweight and they want to lose weight, there are mm -hmm. some things which, based on the sort of mechanistic data, um, I think we can be confident in saying might work. And actually, if we look at various different diets that seem to promote weight loss, like sustainable weight loss, mm -hmm. um, it seems that they all have something in common. If you look at veganism, if you look at paleo, if you look at low carb, if you look at ketogenic, if you look at low fat, <laughs> you know, if you look at all these kinds of diets, what do they do? They minimize, not only do they minimize junk food, but many of the foods um, are actually really quite simple. Mm -hmm. They're basic foods. And the food combinations, um, say if you're on a low-fat diet, yeah, you would be getting lots of starches, but you are not getting um, the the fat in con in conjunction with the starch which activates those those responses to eat more likewise if you're on a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet as many of us know many of our listeners will know there's only so much fat that you can actually eat you know mm -hmm. what i'm saying and so <laughs> and so really um one of one of gna's recommendations and i kind of really um i never thought about it like this but he recommends just to eat plain foods like it doesn't necessarily he doesn't necessarily recommend any kind of diet i think many i mean the research supports lots of different kinds of diets in terms of losing weight but yeah one of one of the things which kind of seems to be amongst them all is plain food so if someone's going to eat sweet potato eat sweet potato don't cover it in 50 grams of butter you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Likewise, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Likewise, if you're going to eat a steak, then I mean, you wouldn't put sugar on a steak, but uh, well, how barbecue can... sauce or ketchup or uh, something like that. That's it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so, trying to stick to plain food. Also, another thing which is really interesting and which kind of seems um, 
clear from the research is protein. Protein seems to be so beneficial for weight loss. And so if someone's on a, there are a few small exceptions to this, whereby um, protein needs to be restricted for various reasons. Um, and that can be beneficial in certain contexts. But it seems clear from the research that protein promotes satiety. So if you are someone who feels like you can just keep overeating, then it's better to overeat on protein. The amino acids get to the hypothalamus in the brain and they actually trigger the responses to stop you from feeling hungry. Um, and so one of the consistent aspects, a lot of the research that I've reviewed in the past um, suggests that people who go on sort of weight loss diets, the ones with higher protein report feeling less hungry and they don't necessarily lose more weight than their counterparts, but what they do is they lose more fat and they maintain more muscle. Because most of the time with, with fat loss diets, a lot of the weight is actually muscle. A lot of the weight is muscle weight and you don't really want to be losing muscle weight. And so by maintaining sort of a higher protein ratio when you're trying to lose the weight, um, that can it can it can stop you from feeling hungry but at the same time it can also help um spare muscle mass which is important for maintaining metabolic rate and everything like that um and and the plain food i think that that could really work well in my experience i found that diets that are higher in protein and especially fat just completely after a period of time knocks out food cravings is you're so satisfied from that fat and that protein, your brain is not really craving any of this junk that you used to eat. Yeah. I think that if you are transitioning, though, um, and you have been uh, going from a fairly crappy diet or even a fairly standard diet, as the mm -hmm. way things go these days, you have to recognize that you are going to go through a bit of a period where you're craving things where the food might not taste as good. You might think, oh my God, this is so boring. But I think that everybody who, who is wanting to make a transition like this kind of has to just suffer through it. Um, know that it's not going to last forever, that you will come to kind of appreciate those flavors, those simple flavors. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, and just kind of like, you know, put your head down and kind of go through it because uh, you'll get there. Yeah. I noticed that for me, coconut oil was really helpful. Like I, I wouldn't say I was ever really a sugar or sweet addict, but when I definitely cut out. Yeah, the woman who doesn't like chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> what? But when I, when I, I know when I went on the high uh, fat, low carb, I all of a sudden would like have this crazy craving for a Snickers bar, which I don't like chocolate. So it was <laughs> it. it the coconut oil, I would just take a tablespoon and it would seem to satiate that need, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, and I don't know, maybe that has something to do with gut bacteria and whatnot. I'd also say, following up with what Tiffany said about Walmart, if you have to go there, stick to the outer aisles, don't even go in the middle. Mm -hmm. or go to farmer's markets or something where you're not going to be tempted by all that packaging. And mm. another thing that I do, because, you know, you go to a party and they always have all these different foods that people make and dips and emulsions and all this. I always eat before I go somewhere like that. <laughs> so I'm not tempted to mm -hmm. eat all that stuff that looks oh so delicious, but maybe will make me sick later on. Mm. 
And I think a big part of quitting this junk food is willpower too. You might not have had any willpower while you were uh, in the midst of this junk food addiction for all the reasons that we talked about earlier and how they manipulate certain brain, evolutionary brain uh, sectors. But once you stop, it's going to take some willpower to you know, not go back to that. And a big part of it for me was knowing all the manipulation that goes into making people want to eat junk food and not wanting to be a sucker. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So if that is what motivates you not wanting to be a sucker and, you know, not being just some little robot that does what big food tells you to do, then that'll take you, I think, pretty far in kind of beating your addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Strengthen your resolve. Yes. Have an aim. Go for it. Yeah. And don't watch the Food Channel. TV. <laughs> yeah, Actually, don't, don't watch, watch food TV porn. at all. Don't yeah. watch TV at all. I There's honestly like so many the ads. Ad, it's, it's it's insane. The amount of like food advertising on TV, and I really think if somebody is in kind of the throes of their addiction and trying to kind of shake it off, that stuff does not help. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's a good point. So um, I hope that was good. <laughs> hope that was good enough. Do we have a pet health segment? Yes, we do. Okay, so we will go to the pet health segment, and then we'll come back and wrap up the show for today. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Every doctor, including veterinarians, know about the number one principle of practicing medicine. Do no harm. But again and again, we can see how corruption, politics, and authoritative approach dictate how our loved ones will be treated. There is this concept called evidence-based medicine that perhaps was created with good intention, but now it is poisoning and killing everything good about healing. I would like to share with you part of an interview between Dr. Karen Becker and Dr. Robe. He became famous, or to be exact, infamous, after being vocal about the dangers of over-vaccination and how full dose of the vaccine is extremely dangerous for smaller breeds. You can listen to the full interview on the YouTube channel of Mercola Healthy Pets. Here it is. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and today I have a very special guest joining me. I have Dr. John Robb, who is a veterinarian of how many years, Dr. Robb, have you been a veterinarian? 32 years. 32 years. Uh, Dr. Robb, many of you know who he is. He is world famous as of this year. We'll explain why in just a minute. Before we talk about the trials and tribulations of what you've been through recently, John, let's back up and talk about... um, life before controversy and let's talk about uh your background in terms of where you went to vet school and then the practices that you were involved with thanks karen i'd be glad to um i began i went to vet school at uc davis uh, from 1981 to 1985. Uh, excellent school uh, gave me a good education at least i felt at the time and um, then i did a one-year internship private practice internship in New Haven, Connecticut at New Haven Central Veterinary Hospital. Um, yeah, it's true, I've come in the public eye uh, more recently, but honestly, Karen, I've been 
um, fighting to be a veterinarian my whole career. Uh, you know, the drive for profits in veterinary medicine has really become a problem, especially with the advent of uh, companies like VCA and, and the Mars Company coming in and owning veterinary hospitals. They, these are businessmen, businesswomen. These are people that want to make profits but don't necessarily have the best interests of the pets involved. And unfortunately, the veterinary establishment, uh, the AVMA, AHA, uh, other organizations seem to be joining forces instead of putting their hands up and saying we have a problem here. So, um, you know, ever since New Haven Central, my first experience was uh, my first night on uh, overnight where a dog was hit on the side of the road. It was uh, brought in by the technician who left. It was in pretty bad shape. Uh, I was supposed to put it to sleep. That's what I was told if it's injured. But then it opened his eyes. It looked at me. I looked at him. And then I worked all night to save the dog's life. And then I was in big trouble in the morning because I had spent a lot of money and there was no owner. So I kind of knew at that point that it wasn't really about the pets. And uh, fortunately in that case, um, for the newspaper article, we found the owner. He reunited and sung the praises of New Haven Central. <laughs> so I was off the hot seat. And, uh, but I learned that, you know, there's a big thing about money here that supersedes our caring for the pets. Um, and from there, you know, it's been it's been a problem all the way through, particularly the vaccine issue. Uh, many have come before me and understand uh, that we're over vaccinating pets and overdosing them. Um, but for whatever reason, now it's come to the limelight. Now, in terms of my the reason I came to the limelight, Karen, it's because of the Mars Candy Bar Company. Um, I've owned and operated three veterinary facilities. The first was a standalone practice, which I sold to VCA. The second was a 24-hour uh, emergency care facility, and the third was a Banfield, a franchise. Um, Mars Academy Bar Company came in and bought Banfield. They're a very controlling company. They didn't want doctors making decisions. They wanted to tell doctors what to do. So they defranchised, and they got rid of all 250 hospitals, but they played hardball. If you don't do what we say, we'll go after your license. And that's what they did to me, Karen. So back up, John, and talk about how did that process unfold? So first of all, you touched on so many issues. Part of the reason I, I knew I would be an integrated veterinarian, so I came out, I was the holistic doctor in a very conventional practice for a couple of years, couldn't deal with that because on my day right. off, Wednesdays, I would be treating my cancer patients integratively and they would come in, let's say, for a little bout of nausea on my day off and they'd be vaccinated. So right. I, 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 I left that practice Terrible. because they were vaccinating Terrible. my cancer patients and I set up my right. own hospital, of course. But for those of us as veterinarians that don't have the ability to just up, get angry and set up their own practice, like I did, you many thousands of veterinarians are stuck using protocols that they don't personally believe in, but they are dictated. So how did this go down, John? How did, how did this confrontation with, right. with uh, over vaccines happen? Well, like you said, you know, I mean, I was taught coming out of vet school that, you know, vaccines were good. I mean, you just vaccinated and presented, prevented disease. And that sounded great to me. But unfortunately, uh, I started to see um, side effects. Okay. I started to see anaphylaxis. And then I started to see more, more long-term sequelae. And I began to leave the veterinary uh, literature, like the JABMA, Journal of American Baby Amy, and I started to research on my own. And I came across, uh, you know, veterinarians who had been showing that vaccines caused a lot of serious side effects, including hemolytic anemia, 
and cancer at the injection sites, et cetera, et cetera. So I have a problem now. I'm a veterinarian and I'm hurting my patients with these vaccines. So I decided to change things and I started lengthening the time between vaccines. And I started lowering my volume because it was very clear to me that the small pets could not handle the same volume as the big pets. So when I got to Banfield, um, and, and you know, they, they're so into over vaccination, I put protocols in place to stop that. My protocol was, you know, smaller dogs received a lower volume. And also, um, we only gave one vaccine per visit. And also, I didn't give them all the vaccines they specified. So, so Mars then bought Banfield and they basically came in and they said, look, you know, we want your franchise back. In fact, we're buying all the franchises back because we control the doctors. So we're gonna give you about a third of what it's worth and you're gonna leave and maybe you can go open up another hospital. I said, I'm not going anywhere. I have 15 years left on my contract and you can't tell me how to practice veterinary medicine. That's my job, so get out. Well, they went ahead and, and took my franchise. They had me arrested um, and they did what they said they would do. They said, if I didn't go easy, they would report me to the state board because I was lowering my volume and they said it was against the law. And so they did, they reported me to the state board of Connecticut. And that was a whole nother thing. They came with 10, I mean, between going back to uh, first, I had to go back and warn my clients because they sent a letter out to all 5,000 of my clients saying none of their pets were uh, protected. Yeah. Protected. Yeah. And so they all had, and I knew all they needed to do was do a tighter test and they would show protection. So I went back to warn my clients because they're still my clients and those are still my patients. And so they put armed guards, armed guards in Gosh. front of the of all the pet smarts in Connecticut, two sets, one pet smart paid for, one Mars. And they made a big scene. They brought in doctors from other places, employees from other places. And they started to say, I was making the scene when they created a big tumultuous situation to say to the police officers, this guy's nuts. So the first time they handcuffed me to a stretcher and took me to the psych ward. The oh, second time I went gosh. back, they, they arrested me. And, um, you know, and I'm just trying to hand out literature to do a titer and not revaccinate the dog without doing that. Cause I knew my pets were protected. I had done titers and I knew it. So, you know, it ended up in uh, in court, in federal court, and they lied to the judge, said, oh, we were offering titers. They did everything they could not to do a titer. They injured so many pets. Some died because they revaccinated all of them. That's how they wanted to cover up the crime. In other words, I was vaccinated correctly, and they didn't want anybody to see that their pets had immunity. So this fight with Mars, and then in front of the state board, and this was the craziest thing. I brought in all the scientific articles to my state board in Connecticut, and they told me that they didn't care about science. This is, these are veterinarians. They don't care about science. I broke the law, and so even if I have to kill my patient, I have to obey the law. I said, you guys are crazy. I mean, you're crazy. What are you saying? But this is the state of where veterinary medicine has gotten to, where we have a mandated rabies law where we could take a simple blood test and find out that they don't need the shot. And we veterinarians are in bondage now, yep. forced to injure our patients. And then you got Mars coming in that trying to control veterinarians as their resource. I mean, Karen, I thank God that you're standing up. I thank God other veterinarians are standing up because most veterinarians want to do the right thing, but they're scared to death yeah. about their license and yeah. repercussions. Oh, and you rightfully know? so, John, they have made a glaring, they promised they would make an example of you and they did. But John, the, the silver lining in the horrific circumstances that you've been through is that as integrative practitioners, we've been screaming 
for 20 right. years we're overdoing right. it no one's listening in fact they think we're you know they think all of us are crazy crazy nut jobs because we're right. preaching titers and the most right. interesting thing about titers is that you remember going to vet school i was vaccinated uh at 13 years of age for rabies because i was a wildlife rehabilitator when i went to vet school they titered me they said no 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 you've already been vaccinated you have to be titered <laughs> i said okay so you'll titer me but we won't extend the same courtesy to dogs and right. cats that's right because they're different right dogs and cats are different than people so it goes it comes back to the almighty dollar but honestly the silver lining is you have affected change dr rob you your case as painful as this entire thing has been you are affecting change and for that i am forever grateful talk to me about some of the amazing things that have happened out of this really public case of you standing up and saying i am not going to i am not going to harm animals i took an oath not to and i will not what has happened out of your out of your difficult circumstances, what are some of the benefits that you are now seeing coming into place? Thanks. Thanks, Karen. Yes. Well, you know, my wife and I um, actually started the Protect the Pets movement in 2006. We took all our retirement money and we put it into the movement. It was never to make money, but it was to bring morality back into veterinary medicine. So that was good because I had a track record going into this of already trying to stand up for the rights of the pets and the people who own them and the veterinarians, okay? Yeah. Uh, and so basically what's come out of it is um, I've gotten onto a worldwide uh, screen, meaning because I won't, you know, because I was willing to put my license on the line okay. and, my, and my, all my resources to do what I love best, which is being a veterinarian and protecting my patients. Uh, this has become a movement of the heart mm -hmm. and what's happened is people are joining me and I don't look at it as me at all I look at it as you Karen and all the people who have been fighting these issues mm -hmm. for years mm -hmm. finally getting to a tipping point that we're working together mm -hmm. but what's happening is you see the people were isolated the people whose pets were being injured and dying were isolated and they had no voice and they've been told that it wasn't the shot even though Four hours after the shot, my pet is blind and seizuring and he was fine going in. It wasn't the shot. It just was epilepsy coming on. Or when they started bleeding internally and, and it was hemolytic anemia, it wasn't the shot. Or when there were tumors right on the right hip where they got that injection, it wasn't the shot. You know. But now they had somebody who was visible in the public saying it was the shot. Mm -hmm. And so they've come on board to tell their stories because, as you know, Karen, it's not legally required for veterinarians to report adverse events and therefore there's no real log of it so those in the veterinary establishment the avma aha and those associated with it just want to say i mean there was a veterinarian testifying in the legislature when we're proposing this bill in connecticut who said i never heard of a vaccine reaction i know i mean this is a veterinarian i know so, you know what i'm saying and i was like you know what i wanted to do which i didn't do but the point is now the people are coming forward and now we can see the evidence mm -hmm. you the people are the ones that are driving this change because you have had enough and we veterinarians like karen and myself and others are going to work with you to amend the rabies law and bring morality back into profession go wrong and people like mars the candy bar company who think they could come in and victimize your pet for profits are going to be rudely awakened because we the people control them yeah. because we spend the money and exactly. we decide where we're going to spend it. That's right. You see? So, so we have the power here. We just have to unite. Right. That's the bottom line here. And we are united now.
and you have seen some you have seen your you have seen ripples drops turn into little ripples which are turning into really big waves of of people listening paying attention you are bringing you're doing a great job of bringing to light uh the elephant in our the elephant in the room in our profession right uh, and people are finally paying attention now. Of course, this is vax the vaccine issue is one of the most hotly debated topics in veterinary medicine. Right. But you right. hit the nail on the head. It's the people spending the money. Uh, right. People have a choice over where they spend their dollars when it comes there to veterinary go. medicine and how they spend, how they choose to spend their money. Whether they do a tighter, whether they go to a different veterinarian, whether they choose to associate, let's say, with a corporately run veterinary practice that has protocols that they will not budge on. So right. pet parents are in complete control of how they're going to participate even passively by how you're spending your money. So Dr. Rob, give us some suggestions. If people if people have been through the pain of a vaccine reaction, and keep in mind, Dr. Rob hit the nail on the head, this could be, this is everything from acute anaphylaxis, which means I have had, uh, I have had pay, patients, clients that have brought home a puppy, there was a free vet visit included with the purchase of their puppy, and those puppies have anaphylaxed and died on the table, and veterinarians say it has nothing to do with the vaccine, it just, I mean, it's, it's, it's asinine. Those are some happy non-vaccinated goats. <laughs> that was a good interview. They both it was. got pretty fired up, and that vet was really put through it. So yeah. thanks for that clip, Zoya. So I guess we can uh, wrap up our show. Um, not to negate everything we just talked about, but realistically, there are going to be times in your life, not necessarily that you're going to go out and eat a whole bag of Doritos, but you might have a birthday cake every now and then and celebrate and feast. But... In order to make up for it, you might want to do what our hunter-gatherer ancestors did naturally and of no choice of their own. They skip a lot of meals in between mm. food. So if you go off one day, you can always skip some meals and you're back on track. So that's just my two cents. I agree. Okay. So I guess that's our show for today, folks. Thanks to all the chatters and the listeners and uh, we will be back next week with another show that is yet to be determined. Be sure to check out the other radio shows on the SOT Radio Network, Truth Perspective on Saturdays and Behind the Headlines on Sundays. So that's it. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.